Good morning. It is very nice to see all of you. If you have a Bible, would you please join me in Philippians chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible, we'd love to get one into your hands. Raise your hand. Raise it high, please. And we will get it to you very soon. Um, and when you get it, you can also join me in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. As you're turning there, a couple things to orient uh, this morning, and especially if you are visiting, we as a church family have paused our time in the Gospel of John, and we are in a doctrinal series studying what the New Testament says regarding the church. And so the series is called Ecclesia, which is the Greek word for gathering or assembly. And the subtitle of the series is Features of a Faithful Church. So we're not saying all there is to say about what a church is and what a church does, but, but we are looking at some prominent building blocks. And this is now the 14th message in this series. We spent the last few weeks looking at elders, and then last week in particular looking at deacons. This week we are turning our attention away from the government of the church back to us as members of the church. And so the sub-subtitle if you're taking notes this morning, is servant slaves of Christ. Servant slaves of Christ, as we consider what it means to be a faithful church. And we're using that phrase, faithful church, because the Bible knows of true churches and false churches. True church has the gospel of Jesus Christ. A false church doesn't. But true churches can exist on a spectrum of health. And so we want to be as faithful, attentive, and wise to applying what Jesus says about us to ourselves so that our light of his, of his gospel in us can shine brighter in this community. And if you're visiting, when you go home, that you can shine brighter in your home church. And another aspect of this sermon this morning is there is not one anchor text, which is our custom. Rather, there's an anchor text for each point. And you'll see that as we get there in a few moments. But with all of that introduction, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, to set God's word before us, and then we'll look to him in prayer. Scripture says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Let's look to him in prayer. Lord, we pray this morning that each and every one of us with joy on our lips would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Second person of the Trinity made flesh, incarnate to live in our place, die on the cross for our sins, and rise from the grave for our justification. Let that be the joy and pleasure and treasure of our lives. And Lord, there's implications of that gospel truth, of what it means to be us, what it means to be a family together, following Jesus in Christ in union with him. And so we pray that you would show us the profound implications of what it means to be us so that we might be a faithful church, looking to you, Lord, that by your spirit you bear your fruit in us and through us. To that end, Lord, this morning, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, amen. Uh, big question if you are a Christian, who are you in Christ? Who are you in Christ if you're a Christian? Building on that, 
what is Jesus' purpose for you in this world? You may have some answers to that, but have you thought deeply and broadly about what is Jesus' purpose for you in this world? More specifically, another question for you, who do you belong to? I'm curious how often even a thought like that, a question like that, crosses your mind, who do you belong to? Do you instinctively say, well, I belong to myself? Or, Or do you have a different answer to that question? And yet another question. What parts of your life are you accountable to God for? Are there any aspects of your life that God doesn't care about? That you can kind of do your own thing? Maybe you've thought about that, maybe you haven't, but maybe functionally you live your life as if there are some parts of your life that God cares about and other parts that he doesn't and there's really, you really belong to yourself and not the Lord. Who are you in Christ? Well, of course, answers to those questions and more are found in our Bibles and in the many descriptions that were given regarding what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be the church in Christ. The Bible presents a constellation of terms and ideas to describe what it means to be Christians. So so catch that. The Bible gives us a constellation of terms and ideas to describe what it means to be Christians vitally bound to local churches. And so much can be said of each star in that constellation, but this morning... We are looking at a unique description that does not very often, in my experience, gain much attention. A description of the Christian life that is often undervalued and overlooked, and yet, in the Bible, is a centerpiece of our self-understanding as Christians and our purpose in the world. And so that undervalued and overlooked description of who we are in Christ... What's our purpose in Christ? Who do we belong to? What parts of our lives are accountable to Jesus and more? The description this morning is this. The Bible teaches that we each are slaves of Jesus. Slaves of Jesus. An undervalued and overlooked topic. And so to explore that topic... We're looking at a number of texts this morning. If you're taking notes or you can take a picture of the the screen, we have five points this morning to unpack this mysterious yet profound biblical idea. Number one, a key understanding of the Christian life, we are slaves of Christ. We're going to begin by looking at Revelation 1.1 and a few other texts. From there, we'll move into our second point, number two, The joyous ground of slavery to Christ is the gospel. We'll return back to Philippians 2, which I just read a few moments ago. From there, we'll move into Galatians 5 and see our third point. The purpose of slavery to Christ is imitation of Christ. And then point number four, the result of slavery to Christ, worship of God and growth of the church. We'll look at 1 Peter 4 for that. And then we'll close our time with seven ways to respond to being slaves in Christ. So let's jump right in. Point number one, and if you can be moving there, we'll be rifling through many passages this morning, an uncommon amount of, of Scripture texts. A key understanding of the Christian life, we are slaves of Christ. The book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1. Scripture reads, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, note that word, the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, note that word, John. So you can see here in this one verse, and we have more to come, Two times here in my ESV translation, and many of our English translations are represented in this room, two times here in the ESV, the word servant is used. First with reference to all Christians, 
which God gave Jesus to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And then secondly, and specifically, referring to the Apostle John as a servant. Now, if you've read your New Testament, that's common. You come across that word servant all the time. It happens many times, whether as a noun or in a verb form, over 200 times or so you're going to encounter that word. But, in the original languages, behind our English Bibles, the Hebrew Old Testament with some Aramaic and the Greek New Testament, both of those languages are, longer, are, are larger languages than our language. So Hebrew especially, and then Greek secondarily, are like size 15 and size 14 shoes that are squeezing into a size 9 foot English language. More words, we have fewer words. And so our translators, as they're going from the original into English, have to determine how best to convey what's being communicated in the original. So for example, this is one that's used fairly often, maybe you've heard it, we have the word love, but in our Greek New Testament, there's two words for love, and then in um, Old Greek, there's at least five or more words for different aspects of love. The same can be said for servant. We have the word servant in English, but you go to the Hebrew, you go to the Greek, and there's a number of more words. For example, in Hebrew, there's four different words, and each is nuanced. And in Greek, there's three different words that can be translated into this concept of servant. Last week, we focused on one of those words. Do you remember it? Diakonos, deacon, which means table servant. And the diakonos word group is used 29 times in the New Testament. But I just read Revelation 1.1. And we saw about his servants, referring to all Christians, and his servant John. That's not the word diakonos. It's not the deacon word group. It's the word doulos. And that word doulos is used 124 times and is one of the most prominent terms used in our New Testaments to describe what a Christian is. We are douloses, so to speak. And that word means slave. It means slave. Servant is not the best, though sometimes it is, but more often than not, the most appropriate translation of the word doulos is the word slave, not servant. Servant is too soft of a translation. Now, you may be aware of ancient history. Slavery was common and universally widespread of all people groups, of all ethnicities, of all locations, all across millennia, in all the ancient world. In the ancient world, one could become a slave by legal decree. You could be forced into it by law. You could choose to become a slave and enter into slavery to pay off voluntary debt or even to escape voluntarily extreme poverty. So pay off debt or poverty. There were times where people chose to become slaves. And of course, you could involuntarily become a slave, again by legal decree, or also by being captured in war or by being born into slavery. Slavery was so widespread in the tens of millions in the ancient world across millennia that there were good masters and there were wicked and horrendous masters. But whatever the reason, in the Greek world, and well, all the worlds of the ancient world, whatever reason, that word doulos, in the Greek, that word means slavery, and it meant that you were owned by another and you bowed to their will. But like most good English translations, if you go to the preface of your Bible, and so if you read the preface of your ESV, you're going to discover that they make a conscious decision. And this is true of nearly every single English Bible, except for two that I'm aware of. There's a conscious decision in translating in the English world, doesn't happen in all the other linguistic worlds, but in the English world, there is a decision to primarily translate the word doulos, slave, as servant. 
the same as diakonos. Don't see this as a conspiracy. There are reasons. Some are good. Some I don't think are as good. And they translate it as servant rather than slave for a few reasons. And one of the main reasons, in fact, the first reason our ESV gives us, is they are aware that most Westerners aren't aware of ancient history. And the only referent point that we have regarding slavery is the American enslavement of Africans. And therefore, they don't want us to back-read the... Um, American enslavement of Africans back into ancient history because they were not the same, though in many cases both had wickedness around them. So they make that decision. They state that. That's why they do that. Now, they make an important point, and it has some merit to it, and there's other points too that have merit, but I think that it unintentionally obscures an essential biblical reality. It softens the idea. If you are a Christian, you are a doulos of Christ, a slave of Christ. That means that if you are a Christian, you are wholly and solely owned by another, and you are to bow before his will. One commentator wrestling through these Greek words noted, every slave is a servant and that he or she is obligated to do the bidding of a superior, but not every servant is a slave. Because in the ancient world, you could be a servant and actually be employed for your service. And so it's a confusion of terms. Some servants enjoyed more freedoms and more rights that slaves did not. And so a slave is owned by another. And in the Bible, it is an aspect of our salvation. So please get this. In the Bible, slavery is soteriological. Slavery in Christ is a gift of the gospel. And so back in Revelation 1.1, it ought to read, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his slaves the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his slave, John. This idea in the Bible, you think of the book of Romans, we have been freed from slavery to sin by the blood of Jesus. We have been freed from tyranny of the devil to be now slaves of God and slaves of righteousness. The the same theologian I mentioned a few moments ago refers to the metaphor of slavery, and he says that it communicates to us that by being called slaves of Christ, that there is an exclusive ownership by a master over us. Exclusive ownership. That there's the total availability of service to the master, and that we as slaves have complete dependence upon the master. But, but let me show you this case. I, Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read these passages, but I'm going to remove the ESV translation of servant, where they translate doulos as servant and put in slave instead. Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. James 1.1. 1, 1. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1.1. Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude 1. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Paul, Timothy, James, Peter, Jude... John in Revelation and all Christians in Revelation 1.1, the word doulos is used that we are slaves of Christ. So this is a pervasive idea that in these epistles written by these authors, and the examples of Paul could be multiplied more as he he begins many of his letters like that, they self-consciously, the apostles, self-consciously cherished, relished, treasured, prized the reality that they were slaves of Jesus. 
And that alerts us that not only should we view ourselves as diakonos of Christ, we looked at that last week, but even more so, doulos of Christ, servants of Christ. Or from a different angle, consider this verse, Romans 14, verses 7 and 8. Think about that question I asked you at the very beginning. Who do you belong to? What parts of your life does God care about? What parts of your life does he not care about? Romans 14, verses 7 and 8 reads, None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. There is a total, comprehensive, inescapable reality that every single part of you and component of you belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you even detect it in his name. We call him Lord, as in master and king. Now, if, if you're thinking through this, and this is maybe a new concept to you, you might be wondering, well, does the idea biblically of slavery of Christ contradict sonship to the Father? The pinnacle of the work of Jesus Christ shedding his blood for our sins and raising from the grave was so that we would be adopted as daughters and sons of God the Father, brothers and sisters of Christ himself brought into the family of God. Does this idea of slavery contradict sonship? And the answer, of course, is, is no, quite the opposite. They complement one another. With all biblical metaphors, there are dangers of pressing them too far. We are adopted daughters and sons of the Father. We will reign as heirs with Christ for all eternity. Scripture describes various rewards that we will receive and crowns of glory that we will have in eternity. And yet, at the same time, Scripture describes Christ as our Lord and Master, whom we submit to and obey as slaves, ransomed and purchased by His blood. We shouldn't press the metaphor too far, but we need to embrace it. And this notion of being slaves of Christ with total submission, 100%, no part of our lives not belonging to Christ himself. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. All of those truths recast every command of Scripture in a new light. Cast them in a new light. So here's what you need to understand under this first point. Under this first point, a key understanding of the Christian life we are slaves of Christ. Brothers and sisters, understand this. With every moment, with every beating of your heart, with every breath you take, all of you not only belongs to Jesus, but is to be in complete and total submission to the words of Jesus. Your thoughts are not your own. They belong to Jesus. Your feelings are not your own. They belong to Jesus and are to be governed by him. So don't follow your heart. Follow what Jesus says. Put that in your heart and follow Jesus' word in your heart. Follow your heart as the worst advice in the entire world. Because it's ruining our world. Your thoughts, your feelings... Your attitudes, your desires, your actions, every single part of you, there is nothing about you that does not first before, bow before rather, your good master. Oh, brothers and sisters, we ought, it's a moral imperative, to spend much time thinking about the biblical, glorious, gospel reality that to be brought from death to life and from slaves to sin to slaves to righteousness means that we are slaves of Christ, holy and fully and inescapably. And that's good news. It is good news. Which leads to the second point then. The joyous ground of slavery to Christ is the gospel. 
Now you hear these words of total submission and total obedience and nothing about you actually belongs to you first and foremost. You are a steward of you. You belong wholly and fully to God himself in Christ and that might cause a bead of sweat in our autonomous and independent age to roll down your forehead. And it might cause you for just the briefest of moments for your heart to flutter and then to begin to doubt that the master who owns us, whether we like it or not, is actually a good master. Oh, he is better than you can imagine. Once again, Philippians 2. What are the grounds of our slavery to Christ? It is the gospel itself. Listen again with these ears. We are being told to do things, to be certain things, but listen to the appeal as all appeals of Scripture, all calls to obedience in the Bible, in the New Testament, rather, all calls to obedience in the New Covenant flow to and from the gospel work of Jesus Christ on the cross and in his empty tomb. Here's an example. Philippians 2, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. So notice that it's not just in yourself individually, but it's among us corporately. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Well, what mind is this, Apostle Paul? Well, verse 6, who, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. What does that mean? By taking the form of a, do you see that word in your Bible? Doulos, slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, we cannot talk about being slaves of Christ before we talk about the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation of Christ comes first, slavery comes second. What do I mean? When God the Son became incarnate, and if you look at verse 7, Jesus did not lose his deity, he did not lay aside his deity, he did not diminish his deity, that's all Trinitarian nonsense, that's not true, he's fully God. Rather, Jesus took upon himself, as verse 7, the form of a doulos a slave the second person of the trinity think about god's plan of all the worlds of all the things that the triune god could have done jesus the second person of the trinity could have come down in regal powerful glorious splendor all eyes seeing him on that first time pomp and circumstance on an infinite grander scale than all the celebrities of this world but instead what did god choose to do what did God do for you and for me? God humbled himself. Can we even say that? Yes, because Philippians 2 just did. We can say that because the Bible says that God humbled himself, not because he was prideful. He humbled himself by taking upon himself a lowly estate, a doulos. He made himself poor so we might become rich in the gospel in him. Jesus was born in scandal. He was marginalized. Jesus, God the Son, took the form of a slave. Of all the forms, the form of a slave. And as Jesus said on the night of his betrayal, when he put that towel around his waist and washed his disciples' feet, making himself the duty of a slave, do you remember what Jesus said on that night in John 13, 12 to 17? When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. 
Note the word Lord. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly I say to you, a diakonos servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Our high and powerful king stooped low to be us and girded a towel around his waist as Lord of the universe to wash the feet of his disciples who would soon betray him by running away from him and sleeping against the olive trees in Gethsemane. And he restored them, our king did, and gave them an example. Or earlier in Mark 10, earlier in his ministry, Mark 10, verses 43 to 45, remember what Jesus says? Whoever would be great among you must be diakonos, deacon, servant. Whoever would be first among you must be doulos, slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be deaconed, but to deacon and give his life as a ransom for many. Do you see there that in these verses in Mark 10, the connection of Jesus' incarnation and ransoming us with his blood, perching us, us for the Father, was related to the service, the deaconing and doulosing of his ministry so that we would be freed to be slaves of Christ. And this is why back in Philippians 2, the joyous ground of our slavery in Christ is in the gospel of Christ himself. Jesus became that form of a slave so that we could. He is the pioneer who has gone before us. And that's why in Philippians 2, in the verses above and below what I read, are the appeals to obedience of what slavery in Christ looks like. So for example, Philippians chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. If there's any encouragement in Christ, and there is, if there's any comfort from love, and there is, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do you know why you can do verse 3? Because Jesus did verse 7. Jesus took the form of a slave. And Jesus is the one who by his word and his spirit empowers us to now be able to count others more significant than ourselves. Or we can also do verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then down to verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but also in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Listen. That in command to work out your salvation with fear and trembling is grounded in verse 7 reality of Jesus first taking the form of a slave for us. So you can work out your, your salvation with fear and trembling because Jesus humbled himself for you. You see, the ethic of the Christian life is inseparable from the ethic of Jesus' life. You know, it's been argued, and this is new to me, I didn't know this, it has been argued from ancient history that the word Christian itself means slaves of Christ. I didn't know that. Came across that in my study because there's the word Christian, there's a similar word with reference to Caesar. And, 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 the, and it's like Caesarin, essentially, in the original language, but different. And that means slaves of Caesar, which has led scholars to say that the first Christians especially in the early centuries of the church, adopted the title, they cherished the title Christian because it meant slaves of Christ. So the ethic of the Christian life, doesn't it make sense then that it is inseparable from the ethic of Jesus' life? 
God the Son took the form of a slave to ransom us, save us, and restore us, and restore in us true humanity. Could you imagine what it would look like if we lived in a world where this was true over every human heart, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others? What if it looked like that in our church? Church, we do that. We do it well, but we can excel still more to show a world out there who does not do that, who has false notions of what utopia looks like, when really what we do together in the middle of our sanctification is to be a foretaste and foreglimpse of glory itself. You see, Jesus, the humble, marginalized, downtrodden life of Christ, was in total submission and loving obedience to the Father. Just recall our time in the Gospel of John, how many times Jesus said, in effect, I came not to do my own will, but my Father's will. How often Jesus said, I don't speak my own words, but whatever I hear the Father say, that's what I say. Jesus was in per perfect submission to the Father. Jesus' agonizing and excruciating death for our sin and salvation. The glorious and triumphant resurrection of Jesus. Listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not only the object of our faith, meaning Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not only the object of our faith, it's the objective of our faith. Now, Jesus performed the gospel. The gospel is done. It's not reenacted. We don't enact the gospel. We display realities of the gospel. You can't reenact Christ's death on the cross. We kind of do so with the Lord's Supper. But meaning, gospel belief flows into gospel behavior. What you believe about Jesus will affect your behaviors in Jesus. And if you recognize that Jesus took the form of a slave, and to be a Christian is to be a slave of Christ, that means that when we believe to be ourselves to be um, slaves of Christ, we will live lives that behave like slaves of Christ. Total obedience that is the treasure of our lives to our good and gracious King. The life of Christ is the only true way to live. So to speak of being slaves of Christ is to first to recognize that Christ took the form of a slave for us. So he is, in one sense, asking us to do what he's already done himself in relation to the Father. He has paved the way. We don't worship and serve a harsh and unsympathetic master. We worship a master who humbled himself left the, the, the unspeakable glories of heavens to take on a fallen body. He did not have a fallen nature. He did not have sin, but he had a fallen body. And to live in our place, he is a sympathetic master, a sympathetic high priest who, as it were, washes the feet of his slaves. That's what Jesus is like. That is the God who calls us to be his slaves. That is the God who frees us by making us his slaves. And that then leads us to the third point. The purpose of slavery to Christ is therefore imitation of Christ. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5 verse 13 reads, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love do loss one another. It's the verbal form of the word slave. Slave one another. Notice the juxtaposition. You were called to freedom, brothers. Don't use your freedom for the flesh, but through love, do loss one another. So the reality that we're slaves of Christ, vertically speaking, has horizontal realities that we are slaves of one another, as Galatians 5.13 indicates. This verse shows us something profound. Being a slave of Christ is not an abstract, cloudy idea. To, be, to say that you're a slave of Christ does not mean that you just sit in an armchair and bask your time away. 
No, being a slave of Christ is only seen in the concrete realities of your personal posture toward your church family. To your fellow family of believers. This is where we now consider why being a slave of Christ is a key feature of being a faithful church. To be a faithful church means that among the many metaphors that were given, this one, slaves of Christ, we just read in Galatians 5.13, we have freedom, and therefore because we are free, we, slay, we are slaves for one another. That is the posture we are to take in Christ towards each other. You know, I began last week, as we looked at deacons, distinguishing between the world's perspective on service and that of the Bible's. I said last week in the world, service is really about self-fulfillment, self-gratification, and self-actualization. There's always a measure of self-interest at the heart of worldly service. But in the Bible, service is always about self-denial, cross-bearing, Jesus-following, Christ-imitating. You know, one of the things, when you think about the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of self-control, we tend to think self-control means don't do sinful things. But part of self-control is positively doing the good things that you don't want to do. The fruit of self-control is directly related to you being a slave of Christ. Because self-denial does not come naturally, inherently to us with the remaining sin in us. So in the Bible, service is always about self-denial, cross-bearing. And so in many ways, it can be not, it's doing the things that you don't naturally want to do that are good. The biblical notion of being slaves of Christ, not being our own masters, but slaves of God, means that we answer our master's call and respond to his beckon, and that all we are belongs to him. And I ended last week saying, your deacons like your elders, don't do ministry so that you don't have to. We facilitate and coordinate ministry so you get to. Do you see the difference? A church must respond to ministry opportunities. And I also talked last week about volunteers. A volunteer is a person who does not view themselves as a slave of Christ. And therefore being a slave to his or her church. Volunteers serve on their own terms as they feel like it. And volunteers tend to be open to minimal feedback so long as you don't correct or offend them. Because, hey, they're giving you your time. What more do you want from me? Well, we want from you all that Christ wants from you. Slavery. Welcome to church. <laughs> A slave of Christ serves others on Christ's terms, according to Christ's word, with Christ's love, with Christ's good for others, and desires to grow in an ability to serve better. A slave of Christ cares more about honoring Jesus through meeting tangible, practical needs, making life easier for others, all informed by and infused with the gospel. So do you want to be like Jesus? Then live as a gospel-proclaiming, gospel-demonstrating slave of Christ in service to others. If you don't want to be like Christ, don't serve others. It's that simple. And, dear friends, no Christian is, is exempt from this. It's not that some Christians are slaves of Christ and others aren't. It's not something that you graduate from or are promoted or demoted to. It is the gospel gift that we are all given to be bought, purchased by the precious blood of the Lamb. No Christian is exempt from this, and yet many come to be served rather than to serve. Even some confuse the extent of their serving as simply writing a check for the church and putting it in the offering box and saying, I did what I'm supposed to do. You are supposed to give, Lord willing, that's next week, but that's not to be confused with what serving is. Serving is 
putting a towel around your waist. Uh, uh, one of the pastoral epistles talks about aproning yourself. Aproning yourself. And it's, it doesn't come out as clearly in our English. It's a beautiful picture. But again then, if, if in this third point, the purpose of slavery to Christ is imitation of Christ, that is slavery, then point number four, the result of slavery. Why? Why this? Why this way of God's wise plan? Point number four, the result of slavery of Christ is worship of God and growth of the church. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. As each, and that's every single believer, as each has received a gift, use it to serve yourself. Is anyone there? Thank you, Anita. Call that out. You, for, it does not say that. First Peter 4 says, as each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. So you have a gift, and if you don't use it to serve one another, you are a bad steward of God's grace. Verse 11 says, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, and whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. I like what Peter does here. He doesn't give a gift list. He just says there's two types, speaking gifts and serving gifts, do it. And he says in verse 11 at the end, in order that. So why does Jesus give gifts to the church that we serve one another, speaking and serving gifts? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So practically speaking, what do slaves of Christ do? Anything Jesus requires. And 1 Peter 4 summarizes those as speaking gifts and serving gifts. And every single Christian in this room has either speaking or serving gifts. And if you think you have a speaking gift, it means that you don't put a towel on your waist. You're wrong. We all serve and we all speak in certain capacities. We most readily see, though, the question is, uh, what does service look like? We most readily see what Jesus requires in service to others by the practical needs presented to us in our lives as a church family. In other words, it's not a vague idea of what Jesus wants us to do. We read in the word of, of things to put off and things to put on and how we relate to one another with all the one another's. But then practically speaking, you look at the bulletin and you read the slides, and you listen to the announcements, and the needs that the church presents are the needs that Christ is presenting to be met. Flowing from our commitment to one another in Christ, we serve one another in Christ. Opportunities to serve are presented formally in our life together as a church, and informally as our life together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Through a network of interpersonal relationships, home fellowships, and more, like, like Avery prayed for earlier, Caroline Ministry, which, which provides meals, whether homemade or purchased for those who are in need, or Helps Ministry, cuts down trees and pulls weeds and takes to medical appointments and more. Uh, needs uniquely met by the men's and women's ministries in conjunction with Caroline's and Help Ministry and Facilities Ministry. Security Ministry, pastry, coffee, audiovisual, greeters, ushers, music, administration, technology, graphic arts, visual media, and things that we don't even have in place yet that we still need. Church, you've heard me say many times, the Christian life comes with a towel and rolled up sleeves. There is work to do. Just because you see food and coffee made should not cause you to think that's covered. You should go to ministry leaders and say, where can I help? How can I serve? And, church, what about our children and students? Every week we have nearly 100 youth come through this building, many of whom are not saved. Wanting to learn about the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're eager, they're happy, they're captivated. They sit there and say, tell me the Bible and give me goldfish. <laughs> and we can barely get anybody to do that. Why is that? 
being a slave of Christ is about advancing the gospel, gospel proclamation, gospel demonstration in and through this church. And it takes the whole church to make the whole body healthy. Not just a select few people, all of you. 1 Peter 4, everyone has gifts that can be broadly fall under the speaking or serving category. Being a slave of Christ is about the gospel. If you are a body part of Christ, then you have an essential part in building the body of Christ. If you are a body part of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, then you have an essential part in building the body of Christ. The church needs you. We each do that through gospel proclamation, gospel demonstration, through our unique gifts and talents. But more than that, every act of obedience and service on behalf of Christ is worship of Christ. To make coffee, to hand out goldfish, bulletins, to sweep, to everything in between, ultimately, everything we do is worship towards our glorious Savior. The example that he gave us. We cannot lose sight of the When we lose sight that our service is and slavery is to Christ, that's when we get bummed out, bittered, and bail. And it happens so often. Every act of obedience is ultimately worship of Christ. And Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So do you love Jesus? Then keep the commandments as a slave of Christ. Your love for Jesus is proven in your gospel service to others. So let's look at seven ways to respond to being slaves of Christ. Seven ways. Number one, what should you do with this information? Here are some suggestions. I'm sure the Holy Spirit is already working on your heart to um, encourage you in different areas. But here's the first one. Repent and believe the gospel. So you might be here this morning and you're hearing slavery to Christ. I don't want to be a slave. I want to be a free person. And you've come to investigate the claims of Christ. Friend, this is an exquisite claim of Christ. I said at the beginning that Jesus and the salvation he gives, that our slavery is tied to our salvation. You see, what Jesus offers us, most importantly, is peace with God. Such that God is no longer angry with us due to our sin because our sin is placed on Jesus on the cross. And all of Jesus' righteousness is placed on us by grace through faith. In other words, believe Jesus. Believe that he is Lord. Believe that he rose from the grave. Believe that he died on the cross for your sins. Believe, confess that, and turn away from your sins. And find that being a slave of Christ is the most freeing thing you've ever experienced. Because the Bible teaches that we are slaves of sin outside of Christ. Slaves of unrighteousness. All we can ever do, whether we believe it or not or recognize it or not, is sin against God and heap up more reason for eternal wrath in hell. But Jesus comes to save us and to be a slave of righteousness. So if you don't know Christ, believe in Christ. Say to him even now, I am yours save me and talk to someone that you came with today let them know that you trusted jesus or ask them more questions about jesus that's the first way to respond be right with jesus second way to respond this might seem counterintuitive join the church now, why would i say that you see what we've seen in this long series is that Jesus expects every Christian to be in submission to their local church, where that local church has vetted their profession of faith and together hold the keys of the kingdom for the formative and corrective discipline of the church. Every Christian is to be in the position where others have affirmed your faith in Jesus, your gospel profession, and that you can participate in the life of the church both the formative and corrective discipline of the church. Formative meaning we help each other know and grow in Jesus, and corrective discipline being Matthew 18, ultimately excommunication if necessary. 
Now, why would I say join the church is related to being a slave of Christ? Well, you need to be able to vote on elders. You need to be able to vote on deacons. You should be able to vote on the budget. You should be able to um, participate in church discipline and more. But we in the West, in the last 50 years or so, have sadly been assaulted by a really bad idea in seeker-sensitive churches that you belong before you believe. We think that, hey, I'm a Christian and you're a Christian, so let me do what I want when I come to your church. But remember, your elders and your deacons and the whole church is responsible to mend the fences and to watch out for false teachers and for wolves, to help false converts know they're not false converts and they actually have the true gospel. We're to watch out. We are... We are responsible for each other, not just the elders. And so therefore, the best thing that you can do is to submit to your local church. The people in this room, submit to them, joyfully join us, then start serving. We wouldn't let people who aren't submitted to the church and saying, I agree with your doctrine, I agree with your practices, then go up and start teaching our kids or teach adult Sunday school. Because we don't know you. We don't know what you believe. We ha- you haven't been vetted. It is important and bound up in this idea of slavery to Christ. You need to, in some capacity, however your church does it, be known by your church, and your church knows you, and serve your church. So join your church so that you can put that towel on your waist and serve. Point number three, the third way that you can respond to this is take an honest audit of your life of service. An honest audit. Have you been viewing that writing a check to the church is the extent, I've done my duty, I've served the church? Because the Bible distinguishes between those. It is a service, but not that kind of service. Have you reached a point where, now, there are exceptions. There are extenuating circumstances where people's, the extent of their service to the church is the glorious ministry of prayer. Praise God for that. We should all be praying. That's a service to the church. But otherwise, should you have a towel around your waist, but you don't? Can you point to clear areas where you are actively serving as a slave of Christ to this body or your church family, formally or informally? Can you point to clear ways you proclaim and demonstrate the gospel in this church or your home church? Jesus' expectation and summary from this message is he expects you to be able to say yes to those things that you can. So those are the convicting ones. Believe the gospel, join your church, assess your life, but here's the the final four ways to respond, and they're very quick. For those of you who serve, what joy it is to be a slave of Christ. Guard against viewing yourself as a volunteer. Welcome feedback. Don't bristle or reject it. But cherish that truth. Number five, for those of you who serve as slaves of Christ, treasure the gift of showing Christ to others in your service. I said last week that one of the greatest gifts that you can tell your deacons is that by their service to the church, you understand Jesus better by their humility and love for us. But that also is all of us. One of the greatest gifts of encouragement we can give is that we have the opportunity to, in some small way, be like Jesus to others, to give others a sense of, wow, that's what Christ is like in his love and service for others. Number six way to respond, if you serve as a slave of Christ, prize the opportunity of building the body of Christ in your service. That's not just pastor elder work. That's not just deacon work, it's church work. It's Ephesians chapter 4 work. It's it's the whole church builds itself up in love. So what an amazing gift in the gospel that we actually, you, every single one of us have the opportunity to build us into more Christ-likeness so that our love for one another shines evidently to a dark world. And they know that we're disciples of Christ. And finally, the, the seventh way you can respond is this. Savor the occasion of worshiping Christ in your slavery. Savor the occasion. So much of what we do, I mentioned last week with our diaconal ministry, so much service is thankless. But 
do you remember what Jesus says on that day? That we go and we enter the joy of our master? Do you remember what he says before he says, enter into the joy of your master? Well done, good and faithful servant. There is somebody who sees. Who sees your private tears, your private prayers, your private ministry, your private evangelism, your private service. There is someone who sees his name is Jesus. And he is so pleased by that. So dear church, savor the occasion of worshiping Christ in your slavery. Amen? Lord, we thank you for this unexpected and remarkable gift to be slaves of the Savior who took the form of a slave. I pray, dear Lord, that you would cause each of us, by your Spirit and your Word, to be conformed further into the image of Christ this morning. And however, Holy Spirit, you need to do your work in each one of us individually and us corporately. Do that work for the glory of the Son. So, Father, we pray this in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen.